Hello and welcome to the Longevity Now podcast, the place for all your news and views of life extension from around the world. Today's guest is somewhat of a celebrity in the field of life extension and rejuvenation research. It is notoriety well earned as Dr. David Sinclair has been at the forefront of resveratrol, NAD, and now even DNA methylation research, collaborating with innumerable labs from around the world and guiding multiple startup companies. Listen in to find out his thoughts on past and future research. And now we have a special guest appearing on the Longevity Now podcast, a professor in the Department of Genetics and co-director of the Paul F. Glenn Center for the Biology of Aging at Harvard Medical School, Dr. David Sinclair. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Justin. Thanks for having me on. Well, listeners are quite familiar with your research through the years, starting with you know, resveratrol, then into NAD-boosting supplements, and now most recently into resetting the epigenetic profile of DNA. Could you give us kind of the Cliff Notes version of how your research developed and evolved through the last 15 or so years? Was it just serendipitous discovery that led you each step of the way? Did you collaborate a lot with other labs who discovered such things, or was it more of a focused trajectory, mostly involving the sirtuins? Well, all science is a collaboration, so there's no way uh, I would want or could take credit for where we are now. Typically, our papers that we publish in scientific journals have about a dozen labs that help us because we're not expert in everything. But aging covers just about every aspect of medicine and biology. So we do rely on a lot of people. If I say something that might sound a little arrogant, uh, we, we tend to, in my lab, push the envelope in the way we think. We're not afraid to come up with new ideas rather than putting one brick after another on a wall. Um, it sometimes upsets my colleagues that we jump ahead and they, they counter with, oh, that's unfounded. How can you say such a thing? But so far, it's been a, a good ride in my career. And um we did start with uh, the discovery that the sirtuins regulate aging in yeast cells, and I did that as part of a team uh, in Lenny Garenti's lab when I was just a trainee, uh, a kid of 24, 25, and then moved to Harvard where we started working on what controls the sirtuins and realized very quickly that um, the production of a molecule called NAD is necessary for them to work. Uh, and what they were remarkable about them is that the, at least in yeast and increasingly we, we think in our bodies, the NAD levels go up when we're doing things that are good for us. So in the case of a yeast cell that's eating less sugar and being slightly hot and exercise, fasting, not eating a lot of meat and some other things such as hot and cold exposure. And then finally, what evolved most recently in, in my lab was the idea that the sirtuins are controlling the epigenome, the, the way the cell controls which genes are on and off, and that's essential for us to function as young individuals. And we have some really great evidence that that goes wrong uh, with aging. Yeah, it really sounds like then, oh, uh, you know, starting off with resveratrol and finding out how it affects the sirtuins uh, led you kind of down a path that it's almost like climbing a ladder and finding uh, a more effective way of, you know, boosting sirtuin activity. Right. Well, we worked with resveratrol back in 2003, and we found that was a quite an effective activator of the sirtuin enzymes that protect. And uh, that got a lot of attention because it's found in red wine. But we found many molecules in plants that are produced when plants are under adversity. We've coined a term called this, meaning that if we eat plants that have been stressed before they're picked, 
uh, we get the benefits of those molecules that plants are producing for their own survival. Um, and then we moved on from resveratrol to some synthetic molecules that went into phase two and seemed to work in psoriasis. Uh, the NAD has always been with us, 99, 2000, uh, but only recently we've focused in on that and started some clinical trials. And I think most listeners to this podcast would know that you can buy some NAD precursors on the internet. But we continue to do clinical trials and see how they actually work and, and see if aging is affected in okay. people as well as in mice as we've been seeing. Right, yeah. The results in mice have been fairly dramatic at times with different research groups uh, testing some of these NAD-boosting supplements. And that is quite the question that a lot of our listeners have about this debate between, say, nicotinamide riboside and NMN and just injecting pure NAD. Do you have anything to say about the effectiveness of these various NAD boosting supplements? A lot of people talk about it and they're on the market, of course. Uh, do you have anything to say? Uh, you know, what differentiates them? Well, what I can say is any company where you see my face or my name or my quotes, if, if they're trying to insinuate that I'm involved with them, it's a complete scam. Um, and that, that frustrates me no end. And so I'm not involved in any companies and I don't research their products. You know, I've got other things I'm, I'm trying to be doing. That said, I can go on what's published and what we've seen in my lab before it's even published and what I hear at conferences. There's a massive debate. You know, anything I say in this area, people get upset. Uh, there's a lot of money to be made, not, not by me, but by others and other scientists who are very touchy. So I try to be as scientific as I can about it. NR, nicotinamide riboside and NMN are both able to raise NAD levels in mice if you give it to them in their in their water or inject it into them, uh, into the, the peritoneal cavity. Uh, and that, that works well in mice. There's no question that it seems to provide health benefits. Okay. Uh, in my lab, we've seen endurance, yeah. increased endurance, everything. Um, and in humans, there have been some trials. NMN and NR have been in humans. I can tell you that in my hands, uh, NMN raises the NAD levels in people quite effectively when you take it as a pill. We haven't tested IV. We haven't tested sublingual, which is also another route that people are taking this class of molecule. But I don't know which is better. I think that it's important that we don't just uh, believe the, the hype and the marketing that's on the internet because a lot of that is unfounded and that we have to go to a website like PubMed where those studies are actually vetted by other scientists before we believe what's said. Sure. What about nicotinamide or just plain niacin as far as a precursor to upregulate uh, NAD production? Well, as these other precursors, because niacin, whether it's taken as nicotinamide or nicotinic acid, is only one small part of the ultimate molecule that you want to boost NAD. And that means the cell has to make these other components. There's a sugar called a ribose, and then there's the phosphate, which is um, the other part of it. And really only NMN gives you all of those three components. And empirically, when people have studied this in mice, in rats, and in humans, uh, those niacins are not as effective at raising NAD as, uh, say, NMN is. Okay. Well, you once mentioned uh, there was an additional secret sauce to add to precursors that you were developing. Any news on that front? Oh, well... I, I've been working with a team of chemists um, for about six years now, working on ways to improve those molecules, stabilize them because they can be unstable at room temperature and especially if they get moist from humidity. Uh, but we, we believe we've solved that problem 
and there are hundreds of these molecules that have been made and and uh, I can't say which ones have gone into clinical trials, but we have some uh, proprietary molecule that has gone into human studies for the last two years. Okay. Uh, by, um, by the name of MIB, is that, is that the MIB-626? It is. That's in the clinical trial? Okay. Then um, could you give us an update on the progress of that clinical trial? Do you have like a projected uh, end time for that at this point? What phase is it in? Uh, well, it's gone through many phase one studies, and there isn't just one phase one there's phase one a b c uh so we've done i think at this count at this point three new three trials those and escalating doses in people of various um and now we're just finishing up the last one if all goes well and so far so good we haven't seen anything that worries the hospital and, and the board that oversees this uh we'll move into phase two and the plan is to treat a rare disease and that will be probably done in uh, down in philly and down in Melbourne, in Australia. Okay. Uh, have you ever seen some of these other products that have just arrived recently on the market that boost or rescue NAD recycling within the cell? One product is uh, by a company called Nuchito. It's called Time. And it supposedly has uh, some cheaper precursors, but also a synergistic blend of uh, some other supplements that uh, supposedly uh, boost NAD recycling within the cell. Do you have any comments on that or have you seen those? Somebody told me about them just recently. Uh, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm not spending my day, which is extremely packed down to the minute, researching supplements online. Sure. Uh, I think that people appreciate I've got really important things to do as well. I think what would be great, and I don't know that product. Uh, I, I think that, I think I looked at the, the ingredients and there wasn't, I couldn't see anything there that was obvious and obviously an NAD booster of the ones that we've studied. But, you know, it would take a fair amount of research for me fair in enough. a scientific yep. to say that I understood exactly what was going on with every single ingredient sure, in the product. Sure, I mean, the marketplace is crowded now uh, with the various different types of uh, NAD uh, boosting, you know, supplements and uh, procedures. So uh, under definitely understood. In a recent podcast, you mentioned that since the liver completely metabolizes uh, NR and M. NNM, uh, that one might need to take a large dose of these substances to overwhelm the liver's ability to metabolize the compounds and get them more directly into the blood and into the cell. Uh, Would that possibly overtax the liver? Uh, We haven't seen evidence of that. We're, of course, monitoring liver enzymes as part of the clinical trials. Um, So we haven't haven't seen any overtaxing. And I don't know if anyone else has, but we, we are giving pretty high doses to our subjects. And uh, so nothing like that yet. Sure. And you're in your trial of MIB-626, uh, someone was wondering, one of the podcast listeners was asking, is, do you think this is a supplement that would be cheaper to synthesize than NMN? Uh, well, it's not going to be a supplement, probably. Oh. Uh, we're aiming to treat diseases. No, I don't, I don't do supplements. Let's be clear about that. Okay. Never have made a supplement and never have sold one. So I'm, I'm working on medicines that will treat diseases and eventually be prescribable. So you might say, well, why do that? You know, I, I could make a ton of money just selling something on the internet, but why would I do that? Well, I want to be able to stand behind a product, have it proven through very rigorous placebo-controlled trials that it works uh, in, in hundreds, if not hundreds of thousands of patients. So that's what I'm working on. MIB-626 is cheaper than your typical NMN because we've, we've made some breakthroughs in the way to make uh, the molecule but ultimately, uh, it's a number of years away because we have to get through, if we're lucky, uh, the FDA process. 
I guess a lot of the podcast listeners uh, had some questions about supplements because you have mentioned before that you do take resveratrol, NMN, and metformin and some of these things. Uh, so that's why I think that many listeners uh, thought you might have some, you know, kind of ideas on that type of supplement to promote health and and uh, slow down aging. And there were a couple of other questions. If you don't want to answer, feel free because they are kind of uh, just supplementation type questions. One person asked about using the NAD boosting supplements and what about homeostasis or building up a tolerance to those types of things? Uh, we haven't seen that. Nobody, as far as I know, has done the right approaches to give high doses, say for a month and then take it away and see what happens. But it, it, the body very rapidly adjusts to these things and ends up um, making the uh, if they're not in in high supply. So I'm not worried about that. I haven't seen anything that suggests that the body becomes complacent and stops making these things. Just on the point of yeah. where I'm coming from, it's, it's important that listeners understand, you know, I'm a leading scientist, okay? And if I start sounding like I'm recommending products that I haven't studied or I'm, I'm talking about products on the market, it really reduces, first of all, my ability to do research and my ability to publish research with, with my peers reviewing my work. Um, and it also should reduce my credibility with the public if I'm out there uh, saying, buy this, buy that. I mean, I want to be able to be totally objective, only speak from a scientist's viewpoint. Um, I'm trying my best during this podcast to do that. Sure. It, just a uh, personal question again, you know, because I just brought it up just previously. Uh, do you still take resveratrol, NMN, and metformin on a daily basis? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, and then uh, have you taken any aging biomarker tests recently or that you could share the results of? So just before I tell you that the answer to that, uh, my colleagues at Harvard and my colleagues in the field are extremely critical of of this kind of a test because it's not it's not a clinical trial, it's not science, but it is a few years ago when I was 48 and the result came back that I was 58, which was scary. Uh, so I, I changed what I ate. I took started taking NMN and metformin together. I've always been on resveratrol, um, at least since 2004. And then I did the test again a few months later, and it came back with a number that was 31. Now, does that prove that I got younger? No, it doesn't. Biomarkers that doctors would agree are healthy? Yeah, absolutely it did. It lowered my blood sugar, my inflammation went down, my liver enzymes were better. And so, you know, these tests are more an indicator of your overall health. They may indicate age. We don't know. You can do them. And I, I like doing them because if you don't have feedback about your health, you don't know what's working. Um, and you're flying blind. You know, it's you don't drive a car without a dashboard. So why should we treat our bodies any differently? And with uh, the supplements we talked about here, the NAD boosting supplements, resveratrol, metformin, things like that, uh, most people would say these are only things that will slow down the aging process and not really rejuvenate the human body that other more robust types of engineering biomedical engineering is going to be needed to really reverse biological aging i know that the results in mice have been pretty dramatic and they do seem to have some rejuvenating effects uh is there any hint of that in human trials thus far well first of all there's a there's a few different levels of aging. There's the shallow level, which you can alter very quickly within a, a day or two just by eating the right things and being healthier. There's a more permanent change, which is long-term exercise and supplements that can mimic exercise and, and fasting. Um, and so using 
those kinds of things, you can turn back the clock in terms of physiology. So we can treat mice at least and make them run like mice. But if you stop taking them, probably you're going to go back to the original physiology in the same way that exercise permanently make you. Now, there are some um, areas of research, such as deleting senescent cells, the zombie cells that accumulate in our body, some aspects of aging, and it would be permanent, at least until we aged them back again. But what's exciting about the field and, and research in my lab now is that we've we think we've gone to the deep level of aging, actually to the, the root causes of aging, which we think are changes in how genes are turned on and off, so-called epigenetic clock advancement or epigenetic aging. And we now have a gene therapy that we developed first for mice and we're now developing for for people where we can uh, reset the actual biological clock. Um, and in, when we do that, it's quite remarkable in which anyone can go look at. Um, it's in bioarchive. And we've taken old mice and old mice and now see again like they were young, reprogramming the retina to actually function like it was young again. Okay, now what about um, reversing the epigenetic profile? What about, you know, many people talk about different um, theories of aging, uh, you know, systemic, programmatic, or damage theories of aging. And in this case of the eye, uh, certainly uh, it is known that uh, certain byproducts of metabolism build up in the eye and that it can't be getting rid of. That, do you know how in this recent paper that's on the bioarchive, um, with resetting the epigenetic clock in the retina, uh, in retinal cells. How does that get rid of uh, the accumulation of uh, uh, the stiffening of the cells and the accumulation of undigestible junk? Uh, it would seem that, you know, just resetting the epigenetic clock wouldn't help that aspect of aging. Right. Well, we don't know if it does, but that junk probably is causing cells to misfunction, or to malfunction. They become old, we feel that they're no longer acting like neurons, they're losing their identity, which we actually see when we measure um, their function and their gene expression. So even though we don't remove the junk in the back of the eye, what we do is we infect the nerves and tell them to turn on the genes that they turned on when they were young. And it turns out when you're, when you're young, when your cells are young, they're much more resilient to these kinds of things. Um, now, I don't, again, I don't know about this particular you know, lipofuscin or anything like that, but I think we need to change the way we think about aging. You know, people have been focusing on one hallmark of aging versus another and protein misfolding versus mitochondria function. If you can truly reset the age of a cell, a lot of that, a lot of those problems we found go away. The rest of the, the cell can actually eliminate itself. And we think we're resilient to the things that we think are causing aging, but actually the major problem is that cells have aged themselves internally. All right. And then a technical question that someone had here. I'm not sure if you can answer this, though. In a recent paper you collaborate, collaborated on, impairment of endothelial NAD plus hydrogen sulfide signaling network is a reversible cause of vascular aging. And this person had read the paper and wondered if sodium theosulfate might substitute for sodium hydrogen sulfide in that particular signaling network to reverse vascular aging. Has that been considered? No, no. I, I think that um, it's actually not a bad idea. As many listeners will know, that sodium thiolate is a medication, um, treats a variety of ailments. So it, it could actually be, be quite a useful thing to explore. I think in, in theory it could work. I'm, I'm actually pretty excited. Um, I think it's a good question. Um, but like mo most scientists, my answer happens to be... Uh, good thing to study, and uh, I, I right. may do it in my lab. Sure. 
Uh, do you have any advice for any young scientists who are considering getting into the aging field or rejuvenation research? Definitely uh, get a degree. Uh, the degrees that are helpful would be, in my line of work, a PhD is, it basically gets you in the front door. What do you do a PhD? Well, it, it can be genetics, biochemistry, molecular biology, or bioinformatics. Anything informatics right now is hot. But it's a great time to get into this field. It's exploding. It's going to be hot uh, and be exciting for the next 50 years. Uh, you know, I only wish I was young again and I could get into it because I think the, the most exciting stuff is yet to come. Great. And finally, could you say a few words about your new book? A lot of people might want to pick that up. Uh, sure. You know, I, I've been at the forefront of this field and seeing this research uh, sometimes 10, 20 years before the public finds out about it. But it just wasn't right that I was benefiting seemingly from all this knowledge. Um, and then I would speak to members of the public and they, they didn't really know anything that was going on except what was in newspapers. And so I wanted to to tell everybody directly. That's why I'm doing podcasts and it's why I wrote the book, so that people can read exactly what's going on almost in real time. So most people who read the book have said it's changed their life, the way they view their life, the way they live their life. And people don't get sick of reading it or listening to it. And I, I find the same. There's uh, a lot to dig in. You can read it quickly if you want, or you can dig deep. And there's a lot of extra detail in the back that you can follow. Every fact is referenced. But it's a, it's a view of, of human history and why I think we age, why I think this is different as a theory, this information theory of aging that I'm proposing. It's different than anything that's come before. It's as if gotten uh, a glimpse of, of the Wright brothers flying their gliders on Kitty Hawk. And towards the end of the book, there are three parts. There's what we know, uh, what we're learning, and, and what the future holds. And towards the end of the book is the future and also what my family does and what we think works. And uh, page 304 is, is the cheat sheet you can go to and see the list of things that we've learned. Um, so, yeah, that, that's why I think it's worth picking up a copy of the book because it's history, philosophy, evolution, and, and, and what you can do in your daily lives. The other thing you can do yeah. is if you want to keep up to date because things are changing very rapidly – is I have a newsletter at, at my website, lifespanbook.com. So sign up for that, and uh, you'll see my musings and, and new research that, that's coming out. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. David Sinclair, for joining us on the Longevity Now podcast. Thanks, Justin, for having me on. It's been great. There are a lot of things that could be said to close this interview, things that are very familiar from other conversations with other researchers. However, I would like to focus on an interesting point about doing rejuvenation research while also partaking in some of the cutting-edge supplements, as Dr. Sinclair does. For a scientist, it is difficult to speak about supplementation while trying to maintain the appearance of objectivity required in biomedical research. As the longevity crowd is well aware, each time a new therapeutic shows positive results in mice, flies, or even worms, there are biohackers ready to try it, startup companies ready to sell it, and innumerable people using the quotes from leading researchers to bolster their business. It is a very interesting and promising time for life extension, for sure, but it can also be difficult for those conducting the studies. Until next time, I'm Justin Lowe.